We're going to be in Philippians chapter 1. So if you want to go there in your Bibles, if you have a paper Bible, you can. The, the text is printed in your bulletin today. And uh, I thought it really fitting that we're in Philippians because I knew that we were going to be in Philippians 1 before I knew that Glenn Moore was going to do a video this morning on Lottie Moon. And Philippians is a financial support letter from a missionary to a church that supports him. I don't know if that changes the way you view Philippians, but as a longtime support raiser, uh, I have often been encouraged by the book of Philippians, and a lot of our staff have been encouraged by the book of Philippians in campus outreach. And it's really appropriate to this morning to look at uh, what's close to the introduction of Philippians. This isn't part of the actual text we're going to be, that's in your bulletin, but I want you to Follow along with me if you can. Paul says in verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. That's what he says. So Paul is overcome with joy and thankfulness to them because of the partnership in the gospel that they've had from the first day of the founding of the church. This is a missionary who founded the church that he's writing to from the first day until now, that he has this abounding thankfulness. And as I hear Glenn talk and other, and the Bashers last week and all of our global partners uh, speak, I think this is their word to you. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. I make my prayers with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. We had a goal of $460,000 and blew past that goal. $513,000 is a lot of money. And I'm just so thankful because what that means is, I just want to paint this picture for you. This is is a picture both to celebrate and to encourage you to never stop giving to your global partners, okay? I believe that there will come a day, as it's described in Revelation, where people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation will will stand around the throne and worship the Lamb who was slain. And they will be full of joy. All the people that have been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son, they'll be full of joy. And you will be there too, because you have trusted in Jesus Christ as your savior. But there will be people there from Nepal who recognize you. I realize we're jumping in hard, but you need to hear this. They will recognize you as one who participated in, who invested in the word of the gospel to get to them and their salvation, they will recognize you. And there'll be a brief moment, I think, where you will meet eyes and your joy will be redoubled because not only are you in the fullness of joy in the presence of the lamb who was slain, but they are too. And you got to participate in their salvation. That's an unbelievable thing to think about. And it will complete and double your joy. So never stop giving to your global partners. And know that what your gifts have done is that. It's amazing. And I just want to say thank you for partnership in my life from the first day until now. I've been here since I was one. Uh, and the partnership in the gospel that includes seeing me come to faith under the preaching of Buster and the love and teaching of Craig Harris and the prayers of many of you all the way into when I was a partner out up in Minneapolis with Campus Outreach preaching the gospel up there. And now here, myself and our Campus Outreach team, you guys are faithful supporters of me and my family and our team. So I just want to say thank you for your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. We're going to move forward in Philippians just a little bit from that place. One verse first. In verse 6, Paul says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And so Paul moves from there apostolic partnership in the gospel 
to a more internal corporate reality where he says, God began a good work in you, church at Philippi, and I'm convinced that he's going to complete it. That's what this morning's for, right? We come here to be transformed. We come here to say, Lord, you who began a good work in us, would you progressively transform us until that day when you complete it all the way? We open our hands to him as potter to our clay. That's why we come. And in this moment, I thought it was extra fitting that in verse 9, the Apostle Paul says, It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. With knowledge and all discernment, that's how your love would abound. Because at this moment in our world, we've talked about this a lot this week as pastors. Uh, there's a huge need for discernment. Things are confusing, maybe is the word. Buster got into this last week in talking about sea legs, if you remember. Um, Leland talked about it two weeks ago in Living by Faith and Not by Sight. And I'm going to piggyback on both of those sermons this week. I want to give you a little illustration from uh, The Silver Chair. It's a chronicle of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. It used to be my favorite one. They go, I go back and forth. Voyage of the Entree is really good. Uh, Silver Chair is a good one. And so if you've never read The Chronicles of Narnia, they're not just for children. And uh, there is a Jesus character in the book named Aslan. I assume with the, the movie series out, most of us are familiar either with the books or the movies. And there's a, a Jesus figure in the form of a lion whose name is Aslan. And he meets a young girl named Jill Pole. And Jill actually meets Aslan in his own country, up high above the rest of the world. And he's about to send her on a quest. And in sending her on the quest, he gives her like four signs to remember. And this is what he says about the signs. He says, remember, remember, remember the signs. Say them to yourself when you wake in the morning and when you lay down at night and when you wake in the middle of the night. And whatever strange things may happen to you, let nothing turn your mind from following the signs. And secondly, I give you a warning. Here on the mountain, I have spoken to you clearly. I will not often do so down in Narnia. Here on the mountain, the air is clear and your mind is clear. As you drop down into Narnia, the air will thicken. Take great care that it does not confuse your mind. Remember the signs and believe the signs. Nothing else matters. And when he talks about the signs, he's basically saying, uh, these, I think this is Lewis's representation of the basic truths of reality as demonstrated in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, when you get down there, the air is gonna thicken. And I would say that right now, out there, sometimes in here, <laughs> the air is really, really thick. Really, really thick. I was thinking about it, I thought it's an interesting uh, conflation of circumstances for Buster to quarantine and me to step in here this week. Uh, it, I felt the thickness of the air because A, we're in a global pandemic that is currently around us kind of exploding. Uh, there are a lot of people in quarantine right now. B, uh, it's, it's some of the most political polarity we've ever had, that I can remember anyway. I'm not that old, but I can, I, that I can remember in my lifetime. And enough so that, that a week and a half ago, there was an actual insurrection at the Capitol. Like people stormed the, stormed the Capitol. That hasn't happened in 200 years. It was 1814 was the last time that happened. And when that happened, it was British people who did it. So this is the first time in modern America, in American history when the, the capital has been stormed by American insurrectionists. And in that moment, there were flying Confederate flags, Trump flags, American flags, and crosses. That's funky. Uh, like it ought not be that way. 
That you talk about thick air and trying to discern what's going on. Those, one of those things is not like the other is maybe one way to say it. Uh, and with all of that, now our, our president is currently being peached, impeached for the, the second time in his term. And tomorrow is a day to honor the legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. who fought against injustice, uh, racial injustice in our world and for the image of God and people. And all of that, it's, it's not even that we have all of those circumstances, it's that there are so many voices contributing to those circumstances. And so it's like a super controversial moment. All the voices contribute enough that even the fact that I just said Martin Luther King Jr. means somebody in here is probably gonna say Marxist. <laughs> and I'm not even close to a Marxist, right? Like it's just, but there's like all these voices all the time. If you bring up certain topics that it's like we're just, our political affiliations and considerations, but ultimately our media outlets, like we have, um, if you're just immersed with CNN or Fox News or Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or Snapchat or TikTok or Whizbang or any of these, um, Whizbang was a test. I just wanted to see. Whether, I wanted to see whether you guys thought that that was a real one, because I know that some people, when I said it, they're like, "Oh, am I not hip enough? Like I didn't catch up. I don't know anything called Whizbang." But all of those things, all of those outlets we just live in this moment where you have like the whole world of information at your fingertips immediately and not only the whole world of information but anybody can say anything in a public forum all the time and so it thickens the air and I feel that really really keenly for us uh, I feel like uh, the words of of Gandalf in the two towers when he talks to Theoden, okay? And he says, when he frees him from the grip of Saruman, he says, breathe the free air again. That part right there, that moment is what I feel for us. Like I, I believe that the scriptures have the capacity as God shows us by his spirit, his word and his son, the capacity to simplify and just bring us into the free air. And I feel that really deeply for us. Okay, and I think this text is going to help us there as we talk about basically what, what the, the apostolic aims of Paul as a representation of the church are as an honor of Christ on the backdrop of our current national moment. That's how this is going to go. And because uh, we have this thick air, there are other people that are going to say that this is a political sermon. I promise you it's apolitical. <laughs> It's the opposite of political, and you'll see why. But it's actually a symptom of the disease that we would call things political in these moments. But uh, I, uh, I'm going to read the text, and then we're going to pray. So let's read together. I'm going to read verses 12 through 21. So I'm going to go a little past 18, and then verses 27 to 30. Let's jump in. Paul says this, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So that it has become, become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having been, become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. 
The former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Jumping down to verse 27. Sorry, I didn't follow along. Maybe someone did. Uh, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Let's pray. Father, I feel an extra measure of thankfulness for your word this morning, that you speak directly and clearly. Um, I pray that the spirit of Christ would dwell in us richly, the gospel would dwell in us richly, that we would walk in a manner worthy of the gospel um, as we read the words of Paul here that are ultimately your words. We would surrender ourselves to you, saying to you that you are potter and we are clay. So have your way with us this morning, Lord. Use your word to help us to be free, uh, maybe again, maybe for the first time. Uh, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. So the, the first natural question from verses, I'm going to jump up back to verses 12 to 14. The first natural question is, what happened to Paul? He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So what happened to him? He says in verse 13 that his imprisonment is for Christ. So you can only assume that what Paul is talking about is that he is imprisoned. Uh, the traditional comment, the traditional interpretation or understanding of Paul's imprisonment was that he was in Rome. Uh, in like 62 AD or so, uh, under house arrest for about two years. There are other commentators who would say that Paul was in Caesarea, others that would say he was in Ephesus. Bottom line is Paul's in prison and he wants them to know that his imprisonment has really served to advance the gospel. So all I wanna do for the rest of the time is give you four observations. They are listed in your bulletin. There are blanks. There is no answer key. I don't give you an answer key because I don't want you to cheat. I want you to listen. And if you miss a blank, just come talk to me afterwards. If, if that's your personality uh, and you miss a blank, you can come talk to me. I will gladly tell you what the blanks are. It'll be like a little game. And uh, in these four observations, Basically, I realized as I walked through these points and walked through the text that there are kind of four ways of saying the same thing from different angles. That's good for me because I tend to go long. And if I go long, y'all got the gist anyway, right? Like if I don't get to points two, three, and four, you, you basically got the gist. Or if you zone out at point two, you got the gist. Uh, so observation number one, God's pattern, God's pattern is to use counterintuitive circumstances to advance the gospel. God's pattern is to use counterintuitive circumstances to advance the gospel. Uh, if you are a grammarian 
obsessive person like me, grammatically obsessive, counterintuitive is one word, all one word, okay? Uh, so what happened was, Paul says to the church in Philippi, I, got, I just want you guys to know this, okay? Um, I went to prison. And I assume he's saying most of the things that you read in the scriptures are a reaction to something, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. He's telling them that because either word has gotten out or at least where he was when he went into imprisonment, the, the spirit was, oh, I guess the jig's up. Our man's in prison. It's over now. We can go home. Paul's in prison. He's the guy. He's the one we've been following. Uh, and I assume in that moment what Paul said was, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? It's over because I'm in prison. Don't you know that Jesus said that all authority has been given to him in heaven and on earth and he will be with you always, even to the end of the age, that this gospel is going to go to all the nations and then the end will come. And I've already said the, the end from the beginning. Don't we know that? Every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, don't we know that? So when Paul goes to prison, we don't say, oh no, it's over. We had our, we had our circumstances laid out. But rather, God's pattern is to use counterintuitive circumstances like Paul going to prison to advance the gospel. And I want you to notice that I said God's pattern, not a singular instance. I didn't say that God can use counterintuitive instances to advance the gospel, nor did I say that God, in this instance, used a counterintuitive circumstance. I'm saying God's pattern in the history of the church is to use counterintuitive circumstances to advance the gospel. So it's not like God, uh, it's not exactly like making lemonade when God gives you, when the world gives you lemons. It's this is the path of the kingdom. And I want to demonstrate it to you in a couple of ways. There's a text uh, from Acts chapter 16. It's in your bulletin. And it says this. Uh, when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone. Let me back up and tell you who her is. Uh, there was a, Paul was in Philippi, there was a fortune-telling young lady who was a slave girl with owners, and their owners were exploiting this slave girl who had a demon of, of like divination, and she was a fortune teller, and she walked alongside of Paul and would call out who he was, like this, this uh, truth teller of God, this purveyor of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and eventually Paul cast the demon out. And, and now the owner saw that they didn't have any hope of profit anymore because their profit was in her fortune telling. And this is what happens. It says, her owner saw that their hope of gain was gone. So they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore their garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received, having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Uh, and so this is why I, I show this to you and show you as a pattern. Um, the way that the church in Philippi was formed was this moment. So they fastened their feet, they beat them with rods, this guy gave an unjust accusation to Paul, right? A false accusation about Paul, got him, thrown, got him thrown in jail. They fasten their feet in the stocks. What happens next is God gives them, an, while they're praying and singing, God gives them an earthquake and all the prisoners get unchained, like the stocks are broken. Uh, and the Philippian jailer comes to them and he's about to kill himself 
Because he's like, uh-oh, I failed, and I'm going to be killed or tortured or whatever. This is shame. And Paul stops him, and Paul shares the gospel with that guy. He says, I want you to know about the hope of heaven that you have in Jesus, the hope of forgiveness, the reality of this, this, the crucified one and the risen one, Jesus Christ. He tells this guy, and he, as well as the rest of his household, trusts in Jesus. And that guy and Lydia, they start the church. That is the start of the church. The way that the church started is Paul got thrown in prison. That's the normal way that this has happened in the history of the church is God uses some sort of counterintuitive circumstance, uh, some sort of despairing circumstance to blossom and fan into flame his kingdom. And it wasn't just in the early church. I went to Furman University around the turn of the century, like the, the, this last century. And um, I was involved with this ministry, Campus Outreach. And we were not um, thought well of by the administration. Uh, we, we like to share the gospel with our words and that was, not, that was frowned upon. And we like to say that there was no name under heaven by which you can be saved except that of Jesus Christ. And we would love people in Jesus and point them to Jesus and they did not like us. And so they didn't recognize us as a ministry. They said, you can't meet on campus. Um, they generally frowned upon our staff on campus at all and eventually wrote up religious um, rules on the halls that said things like, if you're in a conversation with a student, you have to end that conversation by saying, this is what I believe, but I believe what you say is right too. That was an actual order to the housing staff at Furman. So we had to meet in a warehouse off campus and the staff women lived in a house off campus and every Tuesday morning at seven o'clock, we would gather about 50 to 75 of us and we'd just pray for an hour for the campus and for the world. And the Lord exploded the ministry. 10% of the campus was involved in campus outreach because God was just bringing people to faith. And then he launched across the world laborers from his kingdom. There are probably 50 to 60 pastors and missionaries and then laborers in all other walks of life that came out of that little season at Furman University when our ministry was de-recognized, when we weren't supposed to be doing it. And so you ask, how does that happen? Like, what is the pattern that Paul is speaking of here when he says... It has, th this is how the gospel has been advanced. It has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So it doesn't take much guesswork. I think it happens like this. The gospel starts going out. The, the current authorities get wind of that. There's, an, a, there's a threat from the authorities on their livelihood to say, ha ha, let's see if they can keep sharing the gospel now, either by putting them in prison or by threatening them with fear. But they they are nonplussed. They are unaffected. In Acts chapter 4, the authorities threaten the apostles and they say, whether it's right in the sight of God, for us to obey man rather than God, you guys can be the judge, but we cannot stop speaking about what we've seen and heard. We're going to keep talking. So they threatened them and they went back and the prayer in Acts chapter 4 sounds like this. Sovereign Lord, this is the prayer of the, of the church when they, when, after the threat happened and they came back to the people, the early church. That This is the prayer. Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? 
The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and his anointed, who's Jesus. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your Holy, Spirit, Holy Servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So the authorities threatened them. They said, you can't do that. That's not legal. You can't do that. We're going to shut this thing down. And they said, God is the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth. Why did the Gentiles rage against the Lord and his anointed? They thought that they shut it down when they put Jesus on the cross. But the Lord had predestined all of that to occur in order to actually bring salvation to people. And therefore, Lord, we do not even pray that we would not be persecuted. We pray that you would give us more boldness. And that's what happened. God uses counterintuitive circumstances to advance the gospel. That's what happens. And, and, and when, so basically when everyone saw that they were unaffected, that they were happy, that they were unconcerned with their life, uh, everyone saw that. And this is exactly what happened in Philippians chapter one. Everyone saw it. And then the other brothers who saw that Paul basically turned to the imperial guard and said, you know who I am. It's just like the Philippian jailers. You know who I am. You know what I'm about. How about you? Would you receive the salvation, the eternal salvation in Jesus? Would you, people who are technically my enemies, would you take that? And they saw that it, that it kept moving forward in the Roman Imperium. And so then all the other brothers saw it and they're like, oh, this is the real deal. Let's keep going. Let's keep going. This is how this works. And now they are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So there's, I told you I'd put this on the backdrop of our current national moment. What I would say is, if you don't believe that God can work through counterintuitive circumstances and actually normatively works through counterintuitive circumstances, particularly circumstances in which the authorities say it's time to shut it down, if you don't believe that, if you think the only way this is going to work, and this harkens back to Leland a couple weeks ago talking about living by faith versus living by sight, we're like, nope, there has to be a, a known kind of red carpet pathway for the gospel to go forward. If you don't believe that, do you know what happens? You storm the capital. That's what happens. Your grip on the circumstance that you think is required in order for the kingdom to move forward is so tight that you despair and you resort to violent upheaval so that when the cross is waved, it's not even close to in line with the heart of Christ because we haven't trusted that God's pattern is to work powerfully. We are nonplussed by the fact that God would use this counterintuitive, or the, the idea that we would have the counterintuitive circumstance. That's number one. We'll move faster now. Number two, Paul has a singular priority, a singular 
priority, a singular focus. Again, I think this is uh, abundantly clear in the text. He goes on to talk about how people are preaching Christ from envy and rivalry and then others from goodwill. Uh, So basically you have some people that are like, Paul's here for the defense of the gospel. I'm bold to preach the gospel because he's still doing it. This is real. This is legit. Jesus is on his throne. I'm going to keep preaching. And there are some that are like rivals to Paul. And they say, no, I'm going to preach because it like makes him jealous or like to show like he gets in prison, but I can keep doing this. And this is Paul's response in verse 18. He says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed and in that I rejoice. He doesn't even care if they're doing it out of rivalry or conceit. He says, is the gospel of Jesus Christ going forward? I make it the ambition of my life, he says, that Christ would be honored whether by my life or by my death. That's the point of my life is that Jesus Christ would be honored by the proclamation of his name and everything else is an afterthought. And so this is what I mean when I say everything else was an afterthought. His physical well-being was an afterthought. Or maybe you'd call it his way of life. It was an absolute afterthought. Uh, two weeks ago when Leland was preaching, he was talking about Corey Ten Boom. You guys remember that when we were talking about Corey Ten Boom and her sister Betsy? Uh, from the hiding place, right? And they were put in Ravensbrook concentration camp. And Betsy is a too-good-to-be-true person, like... Uh, an angelic person, it seems like, and use, God used Corey, God used Betsy and Corey's life and Corey and thousands of people's lives. But there's a part in the book, you know, where Leland was talking about the fleas. And it's like the fleas, she said, give thanks for the fleas. And the fleas ended up protecting their bodies from the guards. Uh, that's a really powerful reality. Uh, Betsy actually took it one step further uh, in her mindset. And she, there's another part in the book when she's talking to Corey and she says... Remember that girl back there at the bunker? Uh, Can you believe that God might use us? There are people who have learned, who have been trained to hate, and God could use us to show them his love. And it says, Betsy, it it dawned on Corey that Betsy was talking about the guards. She said, we're here so that the guards might know love. That's why we're here. And in that moment, what Betsy demonstrated is that she has one priority in her life. She wants the love of Christ, the proclamation of the gospel of Christ to be the only thing that her life is about. Okay? So much so that, that her own physical well-being was like a, in the distant backdrop when she thought, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. So it's not even, basically her good and the good of the gospel were interwoven into one thing. When we talk about God working for our good, we just consider our good to be the proclamation of the gospel, the honoring of Christ's name. Now, I need to say this next part because there's a lot of ways that we can take our priority being the proclamation of the gospel. His priority was not His priority was not, this is our national backdrop, the political institution in power. Okay, his priority was not the political institution in power. When Paul talks, like throughout his letters, 13 letters in the New Testament, and when Jesus talks, there are a few words given to rendering unto Caesar what is Caesar's, but there's just very little thought of the institution in power. 
It, and, and even when the institution in power is a, is a hurdle. Because we know at this moment, it may happen in this next administration, that, that there will be religious liberties taken away, or in the administrations to come. All I want to say from the scriptures is that it's just not, I think it's a wonderful thing. I would always say, if you, if you want the one actual political statement right now, I'd say if you have a chance to vote for political, religious liberty in a vacuum, you take religious liberty, it's a wonderful thing. We live in this 250-year-old social experiment called America, right? And, and we've been under this social contract for a long time. And that's why I think that last, a week and a half ago was so unsettling is because it's like, oh, this happens all the time across the world, but this doesn't happen in America, right? The idea of an, of an insurrection in that moment like that. And uh, we still need to acknowledge, though, that in this 250 years, which has been a mixture of beauty, the social contract of America and the, the constitutional republic has been in some ways really beautiful and in some ways really brutal, uh, I mean, we still have a nation that was founded in some ways upon slavery, like we have both and, right? Uh, but the, the social contract itself is amazing. But it's still one nation in this, still relatively young, in, in right now in the world and in the history of the world. Uh, and I think sometimes when we conflate our priorities and decide the way that the kingdom is primarily going to move forward is through our political structures, and we're going to obsess over that. We're going we're gonna to hitch our wagon to the American administration one way or the other. I'm not saying be left. I'm not saying be right. I'm saying loosen your grip. Okay, that's what I'm saying. When that happens, even as we lament, and I want to be clear, even as we lament non-kingdom realities or non-kingdom attributes of administrations in power, we lament any conviction that a, a child in the womb is not an image bearer of the Lord. We lament any policy or statement or demonstration that any person of any ethnicity is not an image bearer of the Lord. And however that plays itself out, we lament when our president doesn't act in line with the truth of the gospel because all people of all times were made to act in line with the truth of the gospel and there are kingdom realities that need to be at play, but that's different from hitching our hope-based wagon to the political institution in power or hoping that one would be in power. And so what, I just say it this way, we need to be real, real careful with ever letting the words come out of our mouths, we lost the White House. Okay, who's we? We are the church. We'll talk about that in just a second. But we are not the political administration in power. Never have been. We've never put our hope in national administrations in any, in any true manifestation of the church in the history of the world, save the theocracy that was Israel at the very beginning. And so what I'm, when I told you I want you to breathe the free air, I think part of breathing the free air is being able to loosen your grip on whatever happens in our national circumstance that we might say, we have a singular priority, and that's to proclaim the gospel as the church of Christ, and we're just okay. Better than okay. And with that, I think what we can do, and I'm so guilty of this, and this is part of the reason I feel this so keenly, is because I spend a lot of time reading articles <laughs> 
because this, this information age, I spent a lot of time reading articles and reading books and reading, well, more than that right now, articles, watching news, uh, taking all of these things in. Instead of just turning to my neighbor and saying, hey, let me tell you about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'm guilty of that. I think a lot of us are probably guilty of that because in what it betrays is that we actually think that the way, the primary way the kingdom is going to move forward is through our political institutions and not through the church of Christ, proclaiming the gospel one life at a time to our neighbors. That's number two. Number three, to walk worthy of the gospel is to be unified and unafraid. Unified and unafraid. Paul says, starting in verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. The literal translation of that is behave as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. Behave as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, because he's in prison, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Uh, not frightened in anything by your opponents, okay? And, and so I want to say a few things about what it is to be unified and unafraid. Um, first, we don't have opponents in the church, okay? Like everybody in here, at least everybody, I mean, we are a visible manifestation of the, of the capital C church, right? The, the, the invisible capital C church, like the whole church of all the people that are born again in Christ across the world. We are one small visible manifestation of that. So there may be people, I guarantee you, there are people in this church that are not born again. But as the visible manifestation of the church, we don't have opponents inside the church. Anyone that trusts Christ is with you ultimately, and you are with them. My, my old campus outreach director used to always say, if they're for Jesus, I'm for them. But the way our political grip gets in there is, for example, uh, in, in 2016, something like 90 plus percent of African Americans voted for Hillary Clinton. Uh, I've heard different numbers. I heard 96% one time. And 81% of um, evangelicals voted for Donald Trump, most of whom are white. And so you get that kind of political disparity and you start to build these factions inside the church where you say, that's a liberal and that's a conservative or that's a, Trump, a Trumper or that person voted for Biden. And then you start building up your own kind of caricatures of these people as if we're not one family, an eternal family actually, like the people in this room are closer, everyone who trusts Christ is closer family to you than your biological family who does not trust Christ. And people who have black or brown skin and don't look like you, or if you have black or brown skin and you have people who have skin like, that look like me, those people are ultimately closer family to you than your biological family or anybody who looks like you. Because we will spend the next 200 billion years together worshiping Jesus. So it does not look like Christ. It is not in line with our singular priority to advance the gospel of Christ when we have opponents inside the church and we build these factions. And I think we all do it. I'm a caricature artist in my own mind. I was convicted of that this week. I was talking to a couple men in our church and thinking we're a lot more like-minded than I thought we were because <laughs> we just turned and talked to each other. 
Maybe that's the exhortation. Just, just turn and have a conversation. Um, and beyond that, uh, beyond that, I would just say we don't have um, human enemies in, in an ultimate sense at all. I know Paul says not frightened in anything by your opponents. Uh, but what he means is really opponents of the gospel. It's very clear from the scriptures that we don't have human enemies. We pray for those who persecute us. We bless and do not curse. We never, ever revile in return. Martin Luther King Jr. said it this way in his essay on um, nonviolence and racial justice. He said, a third characteristic, he's listing the characteristics of nonviolent resistance. And he says, the third characteristic of this method is that the attack is directed against forces of evil rather than against persons who are caught in those forces. It is evil we are seeking to defeat, not the persons victimized by evil. And what that means is, if you're not a fan of Joe Biden being in office, which I assume a lot of people in this church are not, right? Or the Biden-Harris administration or whatever, or, or even Antifa or whatever, I don't know. We need, we need to back off from some of the voices, guys. But uh, whatever, whoever that is, that person's not your enemy. Not only because Joe Biden is, is, a, is our, about to be our president, we've got to deal with it and pray and honor, honor the people who are in power, but also because he's a person who lives forever. All the people are people who live forever. And so the way that we show ourselves to not be frightened by our opponents is really, it's, it, there's two ways. One is you quit sharing the gospel and you cower. You say, well, I guess I can't do anything anymore. I don't have as much religious liberty as I used to, which is not, according to, the, to, to Paul, an option. The kingdom goes forward in the midst of that. We keep talking. We keep loving. We trust the Lord with the results. Or you fight back. That's the other way that you show that you're frightened by your opponents. You fight them. You treat them as your enemies when you never ultimately ought to have considered them an opponent to begin with. You ought to have considered them another person like the Philippian jailer that would be the start of the new church. Remember, the Philippian jailer was a representative of Paul's imprisonment and an enemy. And he was the person, along with his household and Lydia, who started the Philippian church. So I think I just want to, to step out of the thickness of this air and feel the simplicity of a singular priority of advancing the gospel in a way that steps back from our potential grip on our way of life or whatever American liberty looks like, even though it's wonderful. I'm not saying that it's not wonderful. I'm saying it's the grip and our hope. And we just say, I have one, God's gonna use counterintuitive circumstances to continue to move his kingdom forward. And I'm either gonna jump on board that train or I'm gonna cower in fear or I'm gonna fight back and none of those is actually gonna advance the kingdom. So we get to number four and we finish here. Suffering for Christ's sake is a gift. Suffering for Christ's sake is a gift. It's crazy talk, I know, but it's just right in the text. Um, Philippians 1.29. It says, It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake. It has been granted to you. Two things have been granted to you. One, to believe in him. You best believe being able to believe in him is a gift. The best gift in the world, the gift of faith, to trust in the treasure of the universe and to have your sins covered, to trust in the substitute for you. But there's a second gift listed. It has also been granted to you to suffer for his sake. 
And to make it clear, he says, you are engaged in the same conflict that you saw that I had and now hear that I still have. So the conflict that Paul had was, I'm preaching the gospel until they put me in prison. And the conflict that they have is the same conflict. And he's saying, I want you to know this isn't even necessarily a time for lamentation. It's a gift. It's actually a gift. In Acts chapter 5, they get beaten uh, for preaching the name. Right after they prayed for boldness, they get beaten by the authorities. They brought before the Sanhedrin, I think. They get beaten. And, and it says in Acts 5.41, this is, this is just a wild verse. In Acts 5.41, it says, They went on their way rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to suffer shame for the name of Jesus. In other words, that someone would see the marks of Jesus in their body. And they would say, it must be real. Look how they believe it. It must be real. Look how they love. Look how they don't fight back. Look how they preach to us. Suffering for Christ's sake is a gift. I don't know that I need to say much more than that for it to sink in. It's so counterintuitive. So how do we even think of living like this? The idea that you say, sure, counterintuitive circumstances, lack of religious liberty, bring it on. I got one priority, that Christ is proclaimed, and that I rejoice is going to be honored in my life, whether by life or by death. I'm going to be like Betsy. That who's put in my life that looks like an enemy? I'm going to tell them too. I'm going to tell them. I'm going to see them coming to faith. We were talking to a young lady the other day, my wife and I. We were talking to her about Jesus, and she doesn't believe and uh, has been in a, a challenging circumstance. And I got on the phone with Lisa and said, she's going to be a Christian in two months. <laughs> because that's what God does. Saves people for eternity. That's what he's in the business of doing. So how do we do it? How do we hold loosely to our lives like that and consider suffering to be a gift? And the answer is very simple. It's in verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's incredibly simple. It's so simple. It just takes real faith. Say, I'm going to die, and I'm going to go to be with him. And it's very much better. It's going to happen. And if I can lay hold of, put all my hope in, the grace that's going to be brought to me at the revelation of Jesus Christ, and say, I'm going there, I can let go of my way of life. And then it actually brings clarity to the way to think about the kingdom on this earth. When we start talking about thy kingdom come, because my self-protectiveness is out of the way. I'm just not addicted or accustomed to a certain kind of lifestyle. I don't think about it much. I think about who can know. How can they know the love of Christ? How can they, they know this counterintuitive love as we love each other, unified and unafraid, and as we love the world out there, even those people that are putting us in jail? Because it might be coming, guys. And I really believe this could be a moment to purify our church in wonderful ways. So just ask. I got, I got this questions for discussion for you guys. You can take them and run with them, but just ask. Uh, let's pray. Lord, the news that dying is gain is unbelievable. Oh, would we believe it? I just need to believe it. Lord, I don't need to be clouded with my, the things I see. You say in your word, we focus not on the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen, but the things that are seen are temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. We believe that these light and momentary afflictions are achieving for us uh, an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. 
Would you just enable us to trust that, Lord Jesus? Would you help us to hold loosely to our circumstances, our ministry circumstances, our opportunities, and our lives? Because we have one single-minded goal, and that's to honor you with our life, to make your name known. Um, would you make us one in that goal? Would we be of one mind striving together side by side for the faith of the gospel? Uh, and would that be an amazing testimony to this world that when things happen in the bigger picture of the nation that feel tightening, we would actually feel freer uh, because we cannot stop talking about what we've seen and heard. Make that true in our lives, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.